This program is sponsored by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Students and faculty aren't just ready for change at the Scripps College, they're hungry for it. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today, we're talking with award-winning broadcast journalist Judy Woodruff, anchor of the PBS NewsHour. In 2013, Woodruff and the now-deceased Gwen Ifill became the first pair of women to anchor a major network news program. Over her four-decade career, Woodruff has worked for CNN, PBS, and NBC. She's covered the White House, hosted news talk shows, created and narrated documentaries. She also anchored the PBS weekly award-winning documentary series Frontline for six years. We talk about the status of today's journalism and the impact of social media and President Trump on the news. You've seen a lot of changes. You've had a long and illustrious career uh, working at CNN and PBS and NBC and other places. You've hosted, you've anchored, you've reported. If you take a snapshot of today, is reporting different today than it was, say, when you started or maybe 10 years in? Well, I, Tom, I have to say, I take that as a description of an antique, somebody, (laughs) (laughs) somebody who's been doing this for so long that when the part, when I move, it creaks. Um, But you are absolutely right. I've done this in so many forms and so many versions. When I started out, there were simply newspapers, magazines, television and radio and television um, was network it, and television the th- was the, the three new, networks right? and there were three networks it, television was still kind of the new kid on the block wow. uh, I graduated from college at a time when um, people looked up to the networks it was as you said CBS NBC and ABC and that was it um, and and the tablet was handed down from on high from the likes of Huntley Brinkley or Walter Cronkite uh, Harry Reasoner. Um, we've come a long way since then. I mean, we still have the anchors we like, but they're not, they didn't, you know, they're not Moses. They weren't coming at us from the mountaintop. That has changed. But I really believe that the, that the beating heart of journalism is good reporting, is solid reporting that helps us all understand more about the world that we live in, whether it's our community, our state, our country, our world, space, science, education, uh, the arts. Um, good reporting helps us understand this crazy place that we call planet Earth and the, and the world that we choose to make our own. And that, that job, that role of journalism, in my mind, hasn't changed. The form has changed. The, the mechanism, the technology certainly changed. It doesn't look anything like when I started, when there was 16-millimeter film. Right. 
uh, which I cleaned, by the way, as the secretary for the newsroom of the, the ABC affiliate in Atlanta. Uh, but, Editing with razor blades. <laughs> uh, that's right. But, but the, the central thesis of it all, I think, has not changed. You, you say that the form has changed, and, and I want to dig into that just a, a little deeper. The PBS NewsHour seems to have maintained um, a very high standard of reporting. Uh, there, there are packages. There's, there are in-depth pieces. Um, it, it's quite a variety of news on every show and, and every night. It seems like, however, that many of the, the cable – news, there's very little reporting. There may be reporting what others reported. Uh, I I see newspapers cited all the time, and the reporting is what the Washington Post said or the New York Times said or the Wall Street Journal said. Uh, But there's very little fresh reporting compared to what your program has. Is that a correct perception? And if if so, is that purposeful on, on your part? Well, in the first place, the news hour, since it was it was instituted by Robert McNeil and Jim Lehrer back in the 1970s, after they had been together covering the Watergate hearings, was all about um, paying attention to what's an important issue and trying to make it understandable. To the audience. They started out with a half-hour report. In 1983, they went to the hour, the McNeil Era News Hour, and at that point, they expanded beyond one subject to several subjects. It was still long interviews, long tape pieces. I was part of the program then. I, they let me go out for a week or two, do reporting, come back, and do a 15, 20-minute long, almost a mini-documentary. Um, the times have obviously changed on the program since 1983. We're not doing, 20, you know, on a regular basis, 15 to 20 minute long interview segments or tape pieces. But the, but, the, but the beating heart of the program is the same. And that is to take the most important stories of the day and deal with them in a way that brings, sheds light, that brings greater understanding on the part of our audience of whatever it is, whether it's why did you know, what is this debate in Congress about health care reform all about? What what happened today? What do people need to know? Um, what happened with um, the war in Syria today that, that, you know, what changed on the ground between the Assad government forces and the Iranians and the Russians and the Americans and so forth um, to try to bring understanding? Um, yes, we have a mission to report, uh, but we pick and choose. I mean, we... All journalists every day sure. have to pick and choose. You can't cover everything. I mean, otherwise, I mean, people don't have time to read or listen to everything. So it's our job is to is to do some some uh, some curating. I mean, we start the day, we look at what's out there, figure out what's most important, decide that's what we're going to spend time on, and then we spend the rest of the day sometimes changing those decisions because stories rise and fall in importance as other things happen. You asked about cable news, and I'll just say this that I think the cable channels, the network, television networks, have reporters. They have access to much of the same reporting that we do at the NewsHour. But they've chosen, I think, in, in, in their format 
to to spend an hour discussing what they view to be the lead story every hour. So basically they take you know, an hour and they change the anchor or the, the moderator of the conversation. They put a different group of people around the table, but then they go on to discuss the same story that they discussed in the previous hour. There are exceptions to that, but I think there's a lot of that right now in cable. There's a lot of that, and uh, if you call the, those discussion groups pundits, um, they're the same people all the time. They're, they're, they, I think to an audience, get tiresome. You can almost give their, <laughs> their spiel for them. Uh, your show, uh, if you call pundits, you have two, David Brooks and Mark Shields, w- once a week. Uh, mm-hmm. But they're models of civility right. uh, and obviously have great respect for each other and in each other's opinions. It's totally different than shouting matches. Yes, it is. And that's a principle of the news hour. When Jim and Robin first came up with the idea of having a commentary uh, segment on the program on Friday nights, um, I think Mark was one of the first, I think, to do that. But it's evolved over the years. It was David Gergen uh, at one point. Right. It was Paul Gigo who went on right. to become the editorial page editor of the Wall Street, Wall Street Journal. Journal. And, but it's been David for a long time, and it's been Mark and David together. But the, but the, but the idea behind that was, as you said, to have two people who come at their world. They come with a worldview that's pretty different. I mean, Mark comes from the left. David comes from the right. But they talk about, they talk about what's happening in a, uh, in a way that, that you know they're learning to. They listen. They learn. They don't come in with preconceived ideas. They don't I call, have talking points. Exactly. <laughs> it's not the cookie cutter. They don't right. come in with six, as you say, six talking points or the cookie cutter opinion, and it's going to apply to every issue you bring up. They don't do that. They look at the issue. They turn it over. They look at it from underneath and from the back and forward. And then they and then they weigh in and they bring the full, you know, range of knowledge of everything they've covered and read and known and people they talk to to the table so that you get a really interesting, informed conversation between the two of them. And I've noticed uh, a, a major difference is that they listen to each other. Because they they comment on what each other have said, and again right. in respectful ways, they actually concede points, which is unheard of right. in the right. in the other uh, pundit wars. Uh, it it it's just refreshing, but it's obviously something you intend to to be that way. It's as a in, contrast. That's right. It's intended to be a contrast, and actually, that's a problem because sometimes they agree. I mean, they've both been fairly critical of. President Trump for, an, uh, you know, almost from the beginning of the time he entered the campaign. Um, there are some things they do agree on, but they'll come at it from different perspectives and they come at it from a thoughtful, well-reasoned um, uh, perspective that they're not just shooting off <laughs> their mouths and, and, and making, making it up as they go along. That's what makes that such a special segment, I think. If you look at the other uh, cable shows and, and, and we talk about their use of pundits and panels and so forth, if you look at the economics of it, that's cheap news. 
it's far less expensive than sending somebody out, as you mentioned, in the field for a week and and bringing back a, a, a story. Uh, yes, you have to pay the pundits, but it, it's far cheaper than, than, than going out and gathering news. And if that's the case, it, it, you've come sort of through the evolution, uh, you know, back in the day where news wasn't expected to be a moneymaker necessarily. That's right. It was uh, the loss pe- leader. People right. didn't want them to lose money a lot. Right. But, and there were debates over that, but it wasn't ex- seen as a money-making machine. That's right. And, and now it seems to be. And you look at the networks again. Let's go back to sure. CBS, NBC, ABC. They're in a fierce competition right now for their, their morning news audience, their evening news audience. And if they have a cable channel, as, as NBC does with MSNBC, CNBC, they're competing, of course, with another cable channel, CNN. They are making a lot of money. I mean, somebody said the other day, money hand, hand over fist. When there's a big news story, if it's an election year, if there's a lot of interest in the news, they can make a lot of money. They charge a lot. Uh, you know, there have been a lot of stories written, Tom, about whether sure. television was dying and on the vine and whether uh, some of these TV networks and cable channels were going to go out of existence. I don't think there's any sign of that. Do I think their audiences have shrunk? Yes. I mean, the network evening news audience is not what it was uh, 20 years ago, 25 years ago. Fewer people are watching. Why? Because they have many, many more choices of where to go. Cable news audiences are not as big as broadcast news audiences. But over the course of a day, over 24 hours of coverage, and people getting in the habit of, say, turning on the TV in the morning or when they go to bed at night or, say, if they've got a TV in their office, they want to check in on the news. So a CNN, a Fox News, an MSNBC can make news that way. I hate to think that the, the money is what drives the coverage, but there's no question in some instances that that absolutely is what's, is what's driving the coverage. Um, these, these news organizations have the resources to go out and do reporting. They have reporters right. based in different parts of the world, different parts of the country. But, but if they think a topic is hot, if, say, for example, President Trump said something colorful and controversial yesterday, let's spend today talking about it. We'll be back after this message. At the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University, students and faculty aren't just ready for change, they're hungry for it. The Scripps College was awarded $878,000 by the Ohio University Innovation Strategy Program for an immersive media initiative that will allow students to become skilled leaders in immersive media, especially virtual and augmented reality. The college's Game Research and Immersive Design Lab will serve as the hub for the initiative and provide several million dollars worth of gear, processes, intellectual property, award-winning scholars, and partnerships for the project. Learn more at ohio.edu slash College. It seems, uh, and maybe this is my bias, uh, but it seems that public broadcasting, oh, 
has stayed true, uh, in a sense, to to a, a mission of news. You look at NPR, for example. Uh, I I think they have superb coverage for for the most part. PBS and, and your show and, and Washington Week and and, and others yeah. it, it, it's 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 true to the code so to speak it 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 doesn't put the money first it it puts the news first well that's certainly what we try to do and of course as public media we don't have uh, commercial we don't run commercials we don't sell ads there is underwriting right. which is uh, you know we operate under a different system we do we look for people to support our work and we give them credit for it it's a branding uh, it's a branding <laughs> yeah. thing but but we don't there's not nearly as much money that changes hands and we're always looking for more underwriters frankly i mean because we try to do what we do on a shoestring we try to save money husband our resources as best we can uh, but there's always more that we'd like to have to go out and cover one more story i will tell you this that we have found that one way we can get around some of the limitations that are imposed on us by limited resources is is by uh, affecting partnerships. For example, with the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting, they've done some amazing reporting overseas uh, on the African continent, um, and we've partnered with them uh, to do some stories that have uh, been uh, extraordinary. Um, and then other other news organizations like, um, well, there are several of them. The Center for Investigative Reporting right. has done some work uh, with us, and there and there are others. And we and I will say we're not bashful. You mentioned print uh, newspapers a minute ago. We're not bashful. If if the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal or another news organization has broken a great story, the Cincinnati Inquirer, uh, you name it, um, has broken a story that we think the American people want to hear about. We will invite a reporter or editor to come on the news hour oh, to talk about their reporting. But it's not an every night. No, it, no, it's, it's not, not. My, my study diet. No, it's not. <laughs> from you. That's true. It's it's the exception. I I, I want to shift a little bit. Uh, the the Pew's Research Center, which puts out some amazing uh, things, just back on. September 7th uh, came out and said now 55% of Americans 50 and older are getting some news from social media sites. Um, and that's up from 45% last year. That's a 10% jump in a year. And if you look at the population under 50, it's about 78% are getting news from social media. That being, if that's true, and I assume it is since Pew published it, how do you incorporate social media in what you're doing without pandering to it? Very good question. Uh, the the I'll start out by saying that that online our online website, the NewsHour online, and social media have now been integrated as fully as we can into our work. We wouldn't dream now of of doing an important story without getting it online and pushing it out through social media. Just as an example, last night on the news hour I interviewed New Jersey Governor Chris Christie to talk about hurricane 
uh, Irma and comparing it with the federal response to Hurricane Sandy, Sandy, Superstorm Sandy. I talked to him about that. I talked to him about the opioid crisis. I talked to him about <laughs> the the shots that's you know, figuratively speaking that Steve Bannon took at him a few days ago in, in an interview on 60 Minutes, which Governor Christie was happy to respond to <laughs> I'm sure in his was. own uh, <laughs> in his own candid manner. Uh, as soon as that interview ended, our team went to work getting it out online and pushing it out through social media, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, and so on. That is now a, a, a central part of the apparatus of the news hour. We live on television, but we absolutely live uh, also online and, and through the work that we do in social media. We know that you, we are invisible to many people if we don't push ourselves out mm-hmm. on social media. People don't just find the news hour by sitting, you know, they're not, we imagine people aren't just out there sitting in front of a TV set turning on the news at six o'clock at night. It's much more, you know, they want to they pick up their iPhone or their other de- smartphone device and they're checking their feed. And if they see a reference to something the news hour did, they'll click on that. That's that's how it happens. And whether it's Twitter, Facebook, um, you know, your Yahoo news feed, uh, some other method, it's, it's coming at you from so many different directions, and we have to be part of that. That is now an essential part of our mission. I thought it was interesting uh, Sunday night uh, with Charlie Rose's interview with Steve Bannon on, on 60 Minutes. I thought the interview was exceptionally good uh, and, and, and displayed a lot of the personality traits as well as the philosophy of, of Steve Bannon. But at the same time, the big news item yesterday was what Steve Bannon said about the Comey firing, and that was online. That wasn't even on the air. <laughs> That's the first time that really drove home to me that uh, it, we don't differentiate anymore with as consumers with what's on the air and what's online. Oh, that's interesting. You know, I didn't even realize that the Comey line wasn't. I didn't see the original 60 Minutes interview. I saw parts of it. I didn't see the whole thing. And I did not realize that the Comey line was not in there. That's fascinating to me. I would have thought that they would have wanted to put it in the television interview, but they had a lot of other good information in the television interview That's but but there is there's a strategy behind some of this clearly i mean on the part of all of us in the news media or those folks who think about how to get these things out there to the public you think about okay what are you going to push on television what are you going to push uh on uh, through social You've covered a lot of administrations. A lot. <laughs> well, I, again, I, I don't mean co- that. I mean that respectfully. I didn't cover Washington and Adams. <laughs> I did. Or even Cle- or even Grover Cleveland and Roosevelt. I, I started later than that. The Obama at White House, from every report I've received, from every reporter, a friend of mine that I've talked with, was a button-down White House. It was regimented. It was disciplined. Not always, but for the most part. We now have a White House that some people have said is chaos. Uh, Some people say it's orchestrated chaos. But one thing that I think is clear is that there are more leaks from this White House than uh, probably anyone that you have covered. How do you, as a journalist deal with that? Is it like B. 
beware of people bearing gifts? Is, is it something you're going, oh, wow, this is great? I think what all of I mean every, every reporter is going to handle this differently. Right. If you're if you're the White House reporter for a major news organization like the New York Times, the Washington Post, NBC, CNN, you're going to be in regular contact with the people you're covering and you're going to be you're going to want as much information as you can get and you're going to be weighing it constantly and deciding, okay, why is this person telling me this? Okay, this is this is interesting. Why did he or she tell me this? And you're you're making a judgment call on how to use that, whether you've got two or three sources telling you the same thing. You're constantly when I covered the White House years ago, um, I had to weigh what I was being told. And even even this was even as a relatively young reporter. Then I, I knew that there were motives. People give you information for a reason. Some of it's because they want you to know that they're you know they're in the they're powerful they have they they have access they they know what's going on other times it's to it's frankly just to float something they want to get it out there they want to float an idea and see what the reaction is sometimes it's they have a negative uh, agenda sometimes they tell you something because they're trying to hurt somebody else or they're trying to hurt an idea or a proposal and if they put something bad out about it or that person you know there's a better chance it'll hurt Sometimes they deliberately mislead you for whatever reason. Sometimes they just want to praise the boss. I saw Donald Trump, President Trump, said the other day, oh, some of these leaks are just people wanting to flatter me. And I'm sure that's true. Some people, you know, are quoted as saying things about how wonderful the president is to work for. Um, so people talk to you with different motives. My, in my experience, you've always got to be thinking about the motive at the same time you're covering the White House. I don't cover the White House directly anymore. I certainly talk to people in the administration. Right. I talk to people talking to the talk to the administration. And I I even, you know, at the remove that I'm at now as an anchor, I have to judge everything I get based on the motive of the person I'm talking to. Who are they? What's their position? What do they stand to gain, lose, uh, and so on by by having this information out. And sometimes it's it's purely objective. You know, they want to Sometimes people talk to you because they want you to understand an issue better. And, you know, it should all be so straightforward. But that's not the real well, world. Well, and it just seems that it's more and more and more and more. And every day there are reports out that are based on uh, anonymous sources and, and leaks. Anonymous sources I know always send off alarm bells. Uh I, I see some news organizations sort of changing their rules on anonymous sources now because they're getting so many of them. Right. It, it, that's like sort of walking a minefield, isn't it, as a journalist? Well, I, I'm, I think we've come too far down the road of relying on anonymous sources, all of us in journalism, and I'm not just talking about NewsHour or any particular news organization. Right. In general, there's too much of that. Um, I think we've got to get back to as often as possible. In fact, we have a rule in the news hour. We will not run a story with an anonymous source. Now, what we will do is if two major news organizations run with a story, say the CBS and, and, and the New York Times, just right. or the, the Wall Street Journal and NBC, run with a story, then we're more inclined to pay attention to it. But we will source it. We'll say NBC and the Wall Street Journal are reporting that the president is going to fire Steve Bannon or something like that. But if it's an if it's completely anonymous, if there's, if if all, if what these organizations are mm -hmm. reporting 
has no, usually, you know, what they'll do early on is they'll say, well, highly placed sources or senior officials in the administration say, you know, you, 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 you just have, you have to weigh it on yeah. what news organization is reporting it, what kind of attribution are they giving, um, and, and what their background is. I mean, you, it's a judgment call. But then at the news hour, we don't go. If somebody just calls us up and says, you know, you can't use my name, but here's what's going to happen. We're not going to run that. Right. You know, we, we need to base it on something more solid. You, you stick that uh, in your brain and <laughs> you see if you can confirm it someplace exactly. else. And you try uh, to get it confirmed. Exactly. A variation on that, and, and I think all administrations have um, fabricated various facts and, and situations. Uh, it, it, I don't think that it's just President Trump. But this administration and this president flat out does not tell the truth on a lot of situations and does not give facts. That's a background to ask you, as a reporter, how do you deal with that? The president of the United States says something, and you know it's flat out wrong. Uh, but the president said it. That seems to be a greater and greater, a greater problem than, than it was in the past. Well, let me just back up by saying I think you even said this at the outset of your of your question, Tom, and that is that every politician, every everyone, White House, everyone, they want to put the best face and the right. best foot forward. They want to look as good as they can. They want to come across as winning right. and smart and and right on everything. So there's that predisposition going in. Nobody likes to bring them, make themselves look bad. They don't want to make mistakes. They don't want to be caught in a in anything that embarrasses them. And there has always been in the history, as long as there have been politics, there have been fudging. There's been leaning and airbrushing and the rest of it. So we know that's the case. What has happened, I think, with this administration is we have instances of declarations of things that were just not provable. The, For example, the controversy about the size of the crowd at the inauguration where the president and others said it was the largest crowd ever at an, at an inaugural or in so many years. And, of course, we went back and looked, and you compare the photographs, and that's just not the case. <laughs> not the case. Um, I think in the first place, for many of us reporters, it's an, it, it's an awkward position to be in, to be in a p- position where you're calling out the president of the United States or someone else in a high elected role uh, as not having their facts right. But I think as time has gone on, and this has happened on, in a couple of different instances, uh, in several different instances, um, I've grown more comfortable, my colleagues at the News Hour, other journalists have grown more comfortable just simply saying, the White House said this, or the so-and-so at the president's staff said that. However, uh, documents indicate, or the facts show, or this agency reports that that is not the case. And so I, I don't have, I'm not going to, I'm sitting here talking to you, I don't have a great example to, to share with you, but there have been some instances like that where we we show the president saying something, you hear him say it, and then we come out of that and say, on the other hand, um, it's not the case that those were the most, that the United States had the greatest 
you know, a number of uh, trade uh, negotiations with uh, Asian countries, or I'm just making right. something up that, that you just heard. Are there any other challenges to covering this White House that are different than past White Houses? The, the pure unpredictability of it. I mean, you, you know, we, we're, to some extent, I mean, every new president is unpredictable. Sure. You have to get used to covering a different right. personality, different package of whoever he, he is and his background and so forth. What's different, I think, is that in the past, you'd start out with a statement in the beginning of the day, and you'd assume by the end of the day, the statement would remain the same. In this White House, they might suggest something at 10 o'clock in the morning, but then at 2 o'clock, they might clarify it. At 4 o'clock, somebody else says something that slightly casts a question about whether that's going to happen or not. And then at 6 o'clock, they've said, no, we're not going to announce that at all. And so we have had to be lighter on our feet. We've had to not assume anything, right. not take anything for granted. We hear what they say. We we hear that. You get ready. We get ready. <laughs> or we even may put it online or we may put it in social media. And we say, this is what the White House is saying at 10, 12 a.m. Right. But then at 2 p.m. or 4 p.m. or 6.30 p.m., something different may happen. And we have to be prepared to change it. it it's it's made us all more nimble. <laughs> <laughs> and and probably a bit more weary. <laughs> <laughs> at the at the end of the day, we have to eat our wheaties for breakfast uh, every morning. Yeah, I bet, I bet you do. And then, you, then you've got the Twitter account that you have to cover. And I bet exactly. in your career, you never thought you would be covering a president's Twitter account. I never did, never <laughs> had. I mean, I I followed President Obama on Twitter, but I never right. thought I didn't. And now I have the app. I have the Trump Twitter app. On my phone. You have to have that as a reporter. It's the first thing in the morning? It's, Not the, it, uh, always uh, the first, but it's certainly one of the first <laughs> things I check. One of the very first things I check. What was tweeted? That's right. What was tweeted? I know that this past year has been a tough one for you, losing your, your colleague, Gwen Eiffel. Uh, yes. She was here a couple of years ago and and, and spoke with us, and, and what a gracious uh woman she was and, and what a fine journalist and I know that's sort of been like cutting off your right arm I would imagine. And that you put it exactly right I mean Gwen was she had been at the news hour for 17 years and um, she really represented not just the best of journalism but the best of, of trailblazing and that she was an African-American woman who had come so far was so visible she was not only a great journalist, a great reporter with this sort of unerring sense of, you know, what to focus on in covering politics. She was just a great personality. She had lots of friends. Uh, young people looked up to her, aspiring journalists looked up to Gwen as an inspiration. Um, we, we didn't just lose a co-anchor and a managing co-managing editor. We lost, um, you know, America lost a great journalist, a great human being in Gwen Ifill. And it's it's uh, there's a, still a big hole in all of our hearts. We but we have pledged that we do, we will and we will continue to carry on uh, with Gwen's legacy in mind. She believed passionately in the importance of journalism, of doing good journalism day after day, of getting it right, uh, the importance of a free press, the importance of a diverse press, making sure that the media look like the rest of the country, right. that we are 
women and men, that we are black, white, Asian, Latino, that we are diverse in every way, sexual orientation, religious orientation, ethnicity. Um, so that legacy will, will live on uh, forever as long as there's a news hour. She could ask the toughest question with a hint of a smile on her face, and it would take the sting uh-huh. <laughs> out of it. But it was still a tough question. It was still a tough question. She had a remarkable ability to do that. I can just see her right now. I mean, she could have a big smile on her face, big smile on her face, and but then a twinkle it, in her eye. Oh, my gosh. And and I watched her do it, you know, day after day, night after night. And uh, I was as long as I'd been doing it before I came to work with Gwen uh, as, as co-anchor. Uh, I was learning from her all the time. She was she was just the best, and I miss her. Congratulations on your award, and thank you so much thank for you. talking with us. Great to talk to you, Tom. Today, we've been talking with Judy Woodruff, an award-winning broadcast journalist and the anchor of the PBS NewsHour. We've been talking about the state of journalism in the era of social media and Donald Trump. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or at NPR One. We welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through Apple Podcasts. If you have questions or comments about our podcast, please direct them to me by email at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.